Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Well, we are reaching a remarkable milestone today. This is episode 100 of this podcast, and honestly, it's not something that I really ever dreamed possible when we sat down several years ago to have a great conversation with Randy Tom about sound design on episode number one, but here we are, episode 100. Amazing. Today, we're gonna talk about No Time to Die, and that is the final uh, outing of Daniel Craig as 007. So lots of zeros in this episode, 007, 100th episode. As I mentioned last week, we've got some really fun episodes coming up uh, in honor of hitting this really important milestone for us over the next several weeks, so make sure you're subscribed. If you're not already, you won't wanna miss what's coming up. Today, we're gonna be discussing all things James Bond with the all-star team behind No Time to Die. We have uh, on the show today, Oscar-winning re-recording mixers, Paul Massey and Mark Taylor. And we also have uh, supervising sound editor, Oliver Tarney. Um, Paul is no stranger to this show. He's been on before uh, discussing both uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, for which he won the Academy Award, as well as Ford versus Ferrari. And Oliver Tarney was on the show most recently as part of our Oscars coverage uh, this past year uh, to talk about news of the world. So if you haven't seen the latest installment of the franchise, directed by Bond newcomer Carrie Joji Fukunaga, let me tell you, this movie is a crazy ride. It is big, it is loud, it's got some crazy, awesome action sequences in it, but it also has some surprisingly tender and even very funny moments. It is a lot of fun, it's a great movie. But what was it like to work on the sound? Let's find out. Paul, Oliver, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk to us about No Time to Die. It's Bond 25. It's Daniel Craig's final go-round as the James Bond character. I'm kind of curious for each of you, how did you get involved with the film? And what was it like to kind of come into this storied franchise for Bond 25 and Daniel Craig's final turn with the character? Well, it was obviously um, a huge honor, to be honest. Uh, growing up in England, just as Mark and Oliver have as well, it's you know it's sort of carrying the Union Jack franchise, and uh, it's obviously something that you're you know everyone I think who who works in sound would love to work on a Bond at some point in their career. So uh, it was a huge honor, and uh, I, I managed to get on board uh, because of Michael Solinger and Oliver and Mark, uh, and all of us being hired as a, as a team. And uh, it was a great honor also to find out that it was going to be. Daniel's last film. Um, I didn't know that going in. So uh, it was great. Mark and I had worked on um, the first two of the Daniel Craig um, movies. Mark was the effects mixer on both, but uh, I was one of the effects editors under Eddie Joseph, I uh, was the supervisor on um, the first two. So, you know, for, I think maybe for us, there's a nice symmetry to working on the first two and then, and then just to bookend it with the last one. And for me to be an effects editor at the, the beginning of that arc of the Daniel Craig thing and then finish it off. And uh, James Harrison also was on those two and he was my uh, co-supervisor on it as well. So there's a, a really nice symmetry to, to all that. And I, I even spoke to uh, Eddie Joseph the other day just to catch up with him and, you know, say that we'd all been reminiscing, um, you know, and what a, a nice project uh, Casino Royale was. So it was a really nice way to, to finish that, um, yeah, Daniel Craig era. 
and I did the same job <coughs> for all three. <laughs> so um, I, I guess I've moved on a bit, but <laughs> maybe not as far as Oliver and James. <laughs> so I want to ask you, one of the things I noticed about the film, you know, the Bond films typically start with a huge sort of action set piece that precedes the main titles. But this one starts very differently. It's almost a very kind of intimate uh, sequence uh, in in Norway with Madeline Swan as a child, and then the the first reveal of the villain, and then that sort of that brilliant sequence with the on the ice pond, and then falling through the ice. Can you talk a little bit about uh, about the approach to um, to setting the tone for the uh, for No Time to Die, and that that specific work that went into that first sequence, and and kind of what it what it was like to sort of play against the type of starting with a huge bombastic action sequence in the film? Yeah, was, I think it was the first section that we got to work on we we started midway through filming um just because the back end was going to be really tight so whilst they were filming um we were given that as a just a standalone section to work on um yeah it was quite surprising to to see how they were going to start the film on the, on the first viewing but it's you know Kerry definitely you know wants to do things differently to have something fresh um and that certainly felt fresh you know that opening shot you think is bond on the top shot you just assume it's going to be and then it's not um and there's a couple of misdirections there that being one and then what he does on, on the ice pond as well um you're expecting something different um but it's really beautifully structured um you know and even when he was filming um he was giving feedback to Tom and Elliot, the edit editors, about very specific sounds that he wanted. Um, so as we got the section, it was pay attention to the sound of the crampons, make them really creepy as he's walking through um, the slow sliding door, you know, this very slow sliding door. Everything was given its space. Um, and so there was this very sort of deliberate feel about everything. And then you just suddenly get these bursts of violence, uh, which sort of hit you even more because you've had this sort of space either side. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, a really it sort of you you knew where you were going into something different. It was a, it was a great first scene for us to work on because um, you sort of have to recalibrate and you go, oh, it's not an all out action film. This is going to be a different type of film. So, it was a, yeah, it was a really good one to work on first. And and so obviously the movie then really kicks into high gear when we go to Italy and there's the sequence where Bond visits Vesper's grave and the explosion and then uh, just an extraordinary, I love that chase sequence on the bridge. And, and obviously after the explosion, you get the, the concussive sound effect and Bond losing his hearing. So he doesn't actually hear the car that's coming up behind him. He just, you know, feels the gunshot go past him. So that to me is like, that's, that's when you know, like, oh, now I'm in the Bond world when that sequence uh, happens. So can you guys talk a little bit about constructing that sequence and the, the idea of the concussion affecting Bond's hearing and then how that sequence on the bridge came together. Oh, you, Ollie? <laughs> I guess, uh, again, you know, it was a, uh, something Kerry was keen on doing. Um, and it, I guess it was that thing of, and this is partly element, elemental and partly mix, was how detached um, do we go from from the world? You know, are we literally going to play it as no sound? or So we ended up with a sort of muted sound. So um, you kind of felt what, he was feeling his, you felt his sort of body um, sort of resonating through that rather than um, things that he would hear acoustically. Um, so then obviously Paul w was using the music then to drive that through um, solely until we got onto the bridge. Um, but that was Kerry saying, and it was one of those things like, do you really want to go this low? It's like further, further, further. It's like, okay, fine. And so you really want to be 
that that strong uh, an idea all the way through to the bridge. So, you know, he's really brave and, and good like that and trying things out. And, you know, it works. You know, it just takes a little time to put together. But, um, yeah, it, yeah, it was a, re- a really good sequence. And it's a nice snap out. It really is quite a shocking uh you know, with the car right behind him, and then it's a very violent sort of sound as the as the car skids over the stone, and um, and then we're fully yeah full tilt into action. Then yeah, and we did we did find also that with that treatment on on the uh, his his breathing and vocals and gasps and and all of the sound effects that even the music was going to come in a little bit too bright there, even with the low bass lines. So uh, so that got filtered back a little bit as well. Um, mm-hmm just to try and match the overall tone of, of him running towards the bridge. Uh, it was a really brave idea. It works really well. And it's nice not just to have a, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the 8K tone to simulate deafness. It was nice to have it, it be in him, in his, his POV, his oral POV of that situation. Talk to me about the recording of the... Um... Uh, getting the, the the car sounds on the cobblestones in that little Italian village. I, I presume you can't just go down to the a little Italian village and do field recordings of, you know, uh, an, an extraordinarily expensive car ripping around this historic city. How did you go about constructing all that material? On production, they did exactly that. Um, they, they ripped around a historic Italian city for, for quite a few days in some um, DB5s. But um, uh, no, we, we hired... Um, a proving ground, a car proving ground um, here for two days. And um, so they've got straight tarmac um, track that you can go and record on, but also every kind of dirt track or grass or curbs or cobble or water, everything. So um, we didn't run the DB5 through water, but um, we were to very specific instructions what we could and couldn't do with that car. But um, pretty much you could, you could get, we, we had uh, the three Aston Martins, the motorbike um, and the Land Rover and the Toyota. And um, we were allowed to, you know, have two days of just with the stunt, proper stunt, stunt drivers doing every surface and every car. And, um, yeah, it was fantastic. It was great. It was one of those ones where, you know, you um, you, you wonder, yeah, is it you're getting paid to go and spend <laughs> two days messing around with classic cars. And, um, yeah, it was great fun. Yeah, fantastic. Did you have the the actual DB5 with you? It was the wrong color. It was right. red, but Mark managed to EQ the red out of it, okay, and so good. it did sound silver. Okay, good. Thank, Thank you. Well, I did, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I um, I wanted to ask you uh, one of my favorite moments uh, in that whole Italy sequence is uh, we're in the car uh, <clears throat> with Bond and Madeline in the square, and he's getting shot at, and it's just bullet after bullet after bullet hitting the, 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 you know, the bulletproof glass on the car. And, uh, it's the sound treatment inside the car is so remarkable as those bullets are, are hitting. And I'm just curious about how you guys, uh, built and constructed that sequence. Cause it's so, it's so tense and it's so wonderful that of course, Daniel Craig is just being there cool as a cucumber. He knows, he knows his, his windshield is not going to give out on him. Well, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's just that as well. I think he's processing, you know, what's just happened emotionally. Um, what you know, he thinks he's being betrayed. So I think he's. Um, I, I don't think it's just confidence in the car. I think it's um, yeah, a little bit more than that. But again, it was um, a carry note to have it. He he really is aware of the environment mix wise. Um, and and was very clear that he wanted that assault to feel like a three sixty kind of assault 
rather than being sort of front heavy with a little bit of surrounds, it was like I wanted to feel, you know, the pressure, the SPL kind of coming from um, from everywhere. So you did feel you were in this thing just literally, you know, immersed in bullets coming at you. And we had to build up a huge library of, because there were so many of them and they're all coming out of all the speakers. We had to have a huge palette of um, sounds for the impacts and, and different ones as it sort of rickos off or it's more of a direct hit, like a thunk or a skid. Um, and then at the very end, just as it starts to starts to give and you just get those little crystals kind of starting to fall, which snaps him out and goes, OK, fine. Finally, the car is going to give way. I do have to do something. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a great sequence. It was tricky. You know, if, if you and I remember, I think we switched formats quite a few times when we were mixing that one to make sure that in, in, in Atmos or 7.1 or 5.1, it felt comparable because um, obviously each format, there are slight variations in how surrounds um feel um and so yeah I, I remember i think flicking between the various formats and making sure that um it was going to feel right between whichever format you saw that it was going to stay true obviously the uh the enhanced low end in in surrounds uh using atmos were were really put to use at that point um in that scene but yeah as, as oliver says <laughs> when we flipped to five one seven one had to make sure it worked too <laughs> That's one of my favorite sequences, just the fact that you know not only is he processing what just happened and what's going on, but also the fact that you know that that glass, just sonically, you know that glass is starting to give way. And maybe there's only another dozen gunshots and, and they're going to be dead. It's a great sequence. And, and the way it ends as well, you know, you just... Um, you know, it's, it's all super, super serious. And then suddenly, you know, the headlights pop up the guns come out, the music kicks in, and yeah. it's just pure Bond and, you know, fantastic. Yeah. And Carrie was very um, uh, in, instructive in making sure that the trombone figure there from Hans um, was, was very dominant in the music. Uh, as, soon as, the, as soon as he starts being aggressive again and the car starts spinning and he's starting to fire at, 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 the, uh, at the guys outside, he, he really wanted that trombone figure to just drive it. Which was uh, again a bold choice because there was a there's plenty of other instruments that were driving it as well, <laughs> and too many guns. <laughs> you mentioned um, uh, Dolby Atmos. Was this were you guys mixing uh, and building natively in Atmos from the beginning? And was that sort of I presume that this was? Uh, uh, I mean, I did get to see it in in, in Atmos, and and this was definitely sort of a, a signature sequence uh, uh, from a sound perspective with Atmos. But was this? Uh, uh, was that part of the concept for the sound design of the film from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, we we always when it's an Atmos film, um, we always work in native Atmos as our main mix environment, uh, and just pay consideration to seven one five one, make sure that we're not going to lose anything down the downstream as as we uh, have to start making those masters. But um, I think that's a pretty common practice now that everyone's mixing natively in Atmos. Um, you know, if the film is going to release that way. And it's so quick to switch to, say, a 7-1 re-render or a 5-1 re-render to see how it's going to translate rather than having to print something and then, you know, just kind of, it's just a flick of a button and um, you can see where you're, where you're going, which is handy. I don't see how anyone can mix the other way around, to be honest, uh, and I never have right from the beginning how you would upmix to an Atmos just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But um, if you're going to do an Atmos release, you've got to start in Atmos. I, I could not agree with you more. Um, 
You, you brought up the Hans Zimmer score, which is just fantastic. Paul, I'd love to hear uh, kind of, you know, what was the experience uh, working uh, with Hans? Was was he part of the conversations with you guys during the mix or at what point did the music show up? Um, did you guys have it during the pre-dubs? Kind of how did that whole process with working with the music and did you have a lot of separation for Atmos with the music tracks? And just talk to us about how all that came together. Yeah, I mean, I had... Um... Hans is great at providing separation, and um, I had multiple stems for the guitars and strings and brass and perk and choir and everything. Um, I believe they were, f I don't remember now, I think they were 5-1 or 7-1 stems for each section. <clears throat> and then um, I made the uh, Atmos decisions from there in the final mix, which is, I, I prefer to do it that way than have that decision made early on prior to us having all of the sound effects and everything else in the, in the, uh, in the monitors. Um, Hans, you know, we didn't have very long to mix this. We only had three weeks as a final. Um, so Hans was also up against it. And um, during the pre-diving time, um, he came in with uh, a lot of his, uh, his people and we went through score, you know, Q by Q by Q, spend a couple of evenings going through everything, making sure it's relating, sounding good on the stage. Um, where does it differ from the guide tracks and the demos and how is it going to get, you know, progress from that point forward? Um, so there was a lot of interaction actually early on, which is, is great because a lot of times I don't get that at all. Um, maybe a couple of phone calls, but never actually sitting on the stage going through stems with them. And we had some demos. I mean, they were, they're really good at that. There was, demos which and you know the hands team the, the demos that they produce are just you know spectacular and um so it's a really useful thing for us on the sound design side you're very aware of uh, in that section which frequencies they're going to inhabit um and you know how full they're going to be in those frequencies so we can certainly in terms of sound design elements or for mark doing the effects mix you know we would always be flicking in and out with the music so that we kind of know, all right, are we, are we going to be fighting in this frequency or not? So it was really informative as always to get um, music early like that. And they were, you know, really, really good demos. Um, they're very close. They're like, you know, 10% off yeah. the finished thing. It's ridiculous how good they can get them. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a really useful thing to have while you're track laying or pre-mixing. More and more I'm finding with music and, and mixing native Atmos, I'm, I'm tending not to use too many objects, to be honest. I'd, I'd rather do the spread in a 7-1 environment so that it sits well um, there and for all future down mixes. Um, obviously, there are some objects that are going to be going on, but I, I tend to bring things out into the room a little more and treat the room as a diagonal, you know, treat imaging as diagonal and behind us and front to back and all of the rest with the uh principal seven one bed uh before i turn straight to objects but obviously in this film there were a lot of places where we could use objects that makes sense um tell me a little bit about the mix paul you mentioned that you had three weeks to mix i, I presume that you guys were up against a very hard release date and then of course it got pushed by a year and a half because of covid so i, I know you started the pre-mix uh you guys are on the stage today at, at twickenham working on different films. Uh, and I know you started, you did uh, some of your pre-mixing there and then you finished at Goldcrest, but can you tell us about the, the, how the mix went and, you know, why the multiple facilities and multiple stages and whatnot. And then I'm curious, I'm curious, did you guys 
because there was this year and a half that happened while the film was sitting on the shelf waiting to get released during COVID. Did you end up going back into it or are we hearing that original three week mix when we go to the theater today? I think it's the original mix, right? It was 18 months of QC checks. We were really, really, really thorough. And um, we asked the producers to slip the release date so that we could make sure there was no, you won't hear any dropouts and no, nothing digital in there. Nasty. It's all. Um, there was, I think, two two VFX shots that were updated because they had a little bit more time. Other than that, absolutely, it's, it's the film that was finished at the end of March. Right. In fact, right at the end of the mix, um, I dashed back to LA and, and did the IMAX mix in the, in the next three days um, because it just, you know, it was up against that deadline had to be finished. And then of course, everything just came to a grinding halt. And we li literally, the, the near fields, uh, as they finished, it was like two days later, then it was locked down. That was it. It was, it was a pretty weird time. Yeah. Oh, that was actually mid near field M and E when we got the call to stop. Extraordinary. Well, I mean, that, that's better than being <laughs> in the middle of the final mix when they, when they decide to pull the plug, right? That would have been a, a, a tricky circumstance yeah. for sure. Yeah, get under the wire. That's true. We did actually get finished, and, and that finished product is pretty much what came out. Yeah. yeah. Even though it pushed a year and a half, we didn't get a chance to go back in and tweak anything. I'm surprised. I feel like directors are always uh, wanting to go back in and open things up, especially if they have any time to kind of sit and relax and take a fresh look at at, uh, at the film. But I mean, obviously, the mix speaks for itself. It's uh, I don't know what I would do to change it. It's a it's a fantastic mix as it is. Also, I, I think there's some, you know different directors are different, and I wouldn't want to speak for Kerry or different processes. Are, there's plus points and you know negatives to everything, but sometimes on a really focused, tight schedule on a big film, there's a certain energy about that and um if you had more time or more you could explore more it can become over polished and there's a you know something a little bit sterile can creep in sometimes i've been on movies that feels feel like that a little bit so there is an energy with everyone just going full tilt trying to get something done and it's there might be a few little rough edges but that's part of it it doesn't feel overproduced you know um and I, and I think maybe um you know there would be that danger if you opened it up again and just said we've got all this time yeah. you start maybe just making it a little bit too sanitized or something i think it's it's got a really good energy about it the film and i'm, I'm glad it finished when it did i think it's, it's good yeah it would have been hard to get back into it that's for sure so uh, paul i i wanted to ask you you know it's always one of the most satisfying moments uh of the recent bond films has always been you know you, and as an audience member you're kind of waiting for that for that bond theme to kick in and you never know exactly quite when it's going to happen but you know it's coming and it's always incredibly satisfying when it does so this is your first time mixing a bond film what was it like for you to kind of you know that first time when you got the you know when first of all where in the movie does the bond theme come for the first time and what was it like for you as the as the the guy mixing the music to to put that in well i do remember that moment exactly and i and i didn't actually see it coming upon upon myself cuz i knew the theme was coming up I, and i'd heard it with hans already um but once i actually had it under my hands in on faders under my hands it it was kind of a, a tingly moment i gotta say and i probably played it too loud sorry mark and all right i'm used to it <laughs> <laughs> but um no it was tremendous to hear that and and the power i mean even even at the beginning um you know in the in the opening uh the opening credits when he's looking down the gun barrel and firing and and uh, it kicks in with uh, the classic brass phrases um spine tingling it was great you get used to it after a while obviously but that first that first kind of faders up run through the reel 
um, felt great. Felt yeah. fabulous. It's like, okay, here we go. It's kicking in. <laughs> I want to talk about the, the, the sequence in Cuba and the, the party with the Spectre agents and uh, uh, our first uh, uh, introduction to uh, Paloma, um, the character that Ana de Armas plays. Uh, I love this sequence. It was just so much fun. It's such a, it's, it's such a blast. And uh, specifically, I was really curious about the, uh, I love the way you guys treated the, um, the dialogue and the, the in-ear pieces as they're communicating with each other and how that differentiates from a very busy party uh, uh, situation. Can you talk a little bit about putting that sequence together and, and, and how you guys arrived at, at that kind of way to differentiate those dialogue treatments? Well, this, yeah, this is probably the toughest. <laughs> I mean, I know it's, it seems, yeah, to, to get it to sit like that, you know, it was, it was a pretty tough, um, tough sequence to put together, um, both elementally and mix wise, just, yeah. 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 I mean, I think we spent, we spent an awfully long time on that sequence because there was a lot of experimentation. Uh, in initial ideas of how much to, you know, futz the dialogue, get through an earpiece, how much to hear. Um, f um, for instance, when when they were talking to, when Bond and Ploma were talking to each other, do you actually want to hear their real acoustic voice as well as their in-ear um, uh, response and such? And we tried a few where we didn't hear any of the actual acoustic. We only heard the futz and, and that was a little bit unnerving. Um, and we ended up obviously doing a blend of the two. And then the fuss treatment itself, because there was a lot of music going on in there. There's a lot of sound effects, a lot of crowd and partying. Um, so we had to make the dialogue somewhat clear. Every time we leant towards too much fuss, it, it was never um, legible. Um, and, and Carrie wanted, you know, very, very bold um, music going on as source within the club which was great. Because you want to keep um, the energy up the whole yeah. time, yeah. Like the first part where they walk into a side room, there was um, the illusion of a, of a PA playing in there with some club music playing, and then they go out into the main dance hall, and there's, you know, another a live band playing, there's crowd and uh, a lot of... Lot of um, um, and the little bits of Blofeld that you do, you know, I remember sitting in a cutting room with Kerry whilst he was choosing which bits of the little Blofeld dialogue things would poke through and shifting those all around and trying different options. Um, and again, so that had to have a, a different type of futz again, but you would hear that a little bit. So it was quite a, a thing, a, quite a tapestry of sound to kind of just get right. Um, and in the end, you know, it sounds like it should do. <laughs> it's one of those ones where like with any of these things, you sort of, when you get to there, you go, why don't we just do this in the first place? But <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a, a little bit of a journey to get to there, but uh, I think it, yeah, it's a great sequence. Yeah, it is. It's, it's exciting and unusual. And I, I tried to use height for um, Blowfields to try and you know differentiate between Bond and Paloma's PA. Uh, sorry, uh, Futsing in earpiece. Um, that was tricky because there were two essentially two radios on top of each other, um, and uh, it, you know, as I said, it took a long time to get through that sequence. Um, yeah, we auditioned a lot of streamers, yeah, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then you know, if the copy changed or if the sync of it changed, and then it's, it's a sort of a rebuild again. Even if you just move a line four seconds, then what Mark was having to do to fill in the gaps now had to be reconstructed to keep the excitement up in areas where there were no, where there was now no dialogue, and um, et cetera, et cetera, as you can imagine. It was an exciting sequence, though. Yeah, Mark, how did you poke through that with it, all of that all that cacophony mess with any of your sound effects? My goodness, 
Um, well, initially I was quite pokey and um, it was just like this, you know, this uh, debauched Cuban party going on. So we had to just carve carve gaps around the dialogue. And it, it was almost like little waves of, you know, when in, when you went into a different space, um, you would hear certain bits of the room, but then we'd get away down for the for the dialogue to poke through. Same with the same with the uh, the um, source music and what have you. Just a it was like we'd be in their world for a minute and then back back to the world to describe what we were seeing. So it wasn't it wasn't the end of the world. Um, it was definitely more tricky for poolside than mine. I'm curious about tone, and I want to ask you this. And this may be a complete red herring question, but uh, you know, I feel like. Um, there are certainly a lot of moments in this film that are are lighter in tone and more comedic uh, than some of the uh, uh, some of the more recent uh, Bond films, but it strikes a balance. Uh, you know, there's that first sequence in Italy is so menacing and kind of terrifying, but the Cuban party sequence and that action sequence is kind of fun. You know, it's it's just, just it's a good rock'em sock'em kind of classic Bond kind of shootout punches and you know crazy action and, and from a sound design and mixed perspective do you approach those kinds of scenes differently in terms of you know if it's it's sort of more fun kind of comedic action sequence versus kind of the italy stuff which was a bit heavier what's the do, do you how do you approach that from a, a design and mix perspective knowing that emotionally those scenes are going to sit with the audience in a different way yeah just um i mean the picture obviously is informing you in a big way big way of how to to approach it um but yeah, that's one of the things I like about the film in general. If you, you know, when they, when you see the team going into the bio lab early on, you know, it's incredibly accurate, disciplined, you know, the glass just wumps, it doesn't break, you know, everything's very deliberate, very short little sharp shooting things going on, um, and little percussive uh, explosions that go off. Um, and then you have chaotic scenes, like Italy ends up being quite chaotic and Cuba does. Um, and so I, I really, that was one of the things about, um, the way that Kerry had made it, there's always variation in in uh, each sequence. It wasn't that thing of um, you did one sequence and you felt right. That's our in into how we design this film. That one's you know they've they've bought into that. That's it. We'll just extrapolate that over the film now. Uh, each one had to be looked at um, as its own case um, for sound design and um, and, and the Cuba one. Um, you know, I think Anna Damas brought um, a lot of levity to that. She was just fantastic in it. And I think if you're going to have a long film and the film did have to be long. There's a lot, you know, there were, there's a whole arc there, a five film arc that they were kind of wrapping up. So there's a lot to get in, but I still think that earned its place, um, you know, very well. In, if you're going to have a long film, I think you can still take a little bit of time to go and have something fun and just reset a little bit in that way. And then, and so that it doesn't feel it's just too serious all the time or, or too fun all the time. You know, it was a great dynamic to have shifts like that in the film. And I think in terms of approach from the from a mixed standpoint, I, I've never really like analyzed this, but I guess you go a little bit more when it's more of a comedic um, chase sequence like that. Possibly you go a little bit more toward the music, you know, in terms of just keep keeping it a little bit light. Whereas if it's very very serious and there's a, a chase and a huge threat to life or something, then you're going to be um, Leaning into the effects a little bit, a little bit more, uh, and maybe the way you build the, you know, the gunshots and the sounds of the cars and such would differ somewhat from a comedic scene. It's um, leaving holes afterwards as well. If, they, if yeah. there's little lines that just you want to land, just leave a hole afterwards, you know, and just let that 
you know, wash over the audience and then and come back in again, rather than if it's a full on action scene, which is a lot more serious and you just want to keep the energy up the whole way. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, right. dynamics. I think these scenes naturally inform us how to, how to uh, design and mix them, to be honest, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you, you know that when they're going across that um, zip line, it's not really a threat to anyone, even though it looks like it. If you if you took it out of context, um, it's going to end up with a sort of woo, 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 woo. <laughs> that's, that's what's going to happen in the scene. <laughs> right? uh but you don't have to wait very long for the menace and the the dark tone to come back. I think shortly after that, we we find ourselves on the um, on on the the boat that explodes, and we have our we have our final moment with one of our one of our beloved characters from the last few films. Uh, can you talk about putting those the that sequence together on the boat? And I'm, I mean, it, it was such it was such an emotional sequence, uh, and yet I mean, were the production tracks usable? Was that all ADR? How did that sequence come together? It was um, Simon Hayes was the um, did the production recordings, um, and he's spectacularly good. Um, and there's very little ADR in the film, even though there was a lot of IMAX, um, and we did some tests, and it's, they're pretty noisy those IMAX cameras. But he did an incredible job. Um, and so I think, if I recall correctly, there was a few lines that we had to ADR, maybe you know where where it went very very quiet, um, but most. I think most of it was kind of production, wasn't it? There yeah, was I few, seem to remember yeah. most of that being production. It was obviously noisy, um, but again, Simon did a great job, so it was legible. And, and we're um, going to add in water anyway, so yeah. it didn't have to be pristine. Um, yeah. So once you added in, you know, Mark did a great job of, of just making that ship threatening and sound like it was creaking and sinking and the water rushing in and all the rest. And um, so ultimately, you know, you can make that dialogue work. If, if the dialogue's legible above the noise floor and you're going to have a noisy scene like that, it's probably going to work as production if that's what everyone likes performance-wise. Uh, it's tough, though. With water, water, the, you know, the bit in, when you're designing, a lot of the energy and the sound of water is is in that kind of dialogue range, um, and it's pretty hard. If you, if you do just low-end and just very toppy, you kind of don't feel that you know, violence of the water. So um, it was pretty tough to, again, get the balance of um, not getting in the way of their dialogue, but still feeling like the, the water is progressing and, and is an increasing threat. And all the groans from the um, boat sinking as well, I seem to remember. Yeah. Spending yeah. quite a bit of time placing those around, A, the room, and also around the dialogue to sell the idea that they're in a, a sinking ship. I do remember at one point, Carrie saying that, you know, those engine rooms are incredibly noisy. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was kind of grateful that he was saying that because <laughs> it was going to be noisy no matter what. There's no way we're going to go into, inside someone's head during that sequence. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I also presume that that was, uh, that was a particular sequence where you must have leaned pretty heavily on Atmos to kind of, you know, put the creeks in the water and, uh, you know, all the, you know, to, to carve out a little bit of space in that front channel for the dialogue to come through as well. There was a lot of time spent on those creeks, right, Mark? There was. And there was a lot of time you making sure that I did that so that you could hear the dialogue. <laughs> it's very intimate, the dialogue in that scene. So um, yeah. it was, but it, I think it turned out nicely. Yeah, definitely. I'm getting the, I, I'm getting the sense that you, Paul, you, you and Mark have, have a very delicate dance to do on this film to, because <laughs> all these, all, all these elements are hitting at once. Right? I'm terrified of him. <laughs> No, I think collectively as a team, we all we all try to find those, you know, work, work around what needs to be shining at any one moment. And um, 
you know that that takes a lot of uh, editorial effort and it takes a lot of um, mixing understanding i think um you know there's no there's there's certainly no feeling of you know effects must win or or, or music must win I there mean, wasn't no not, not well i didn't think there was ollie well that's that's how we do it it's just all subliminal things where um yeah as if you notice then it's an issue yeah we, um, yeah but we are trying to get that all the time but clearly dialogue has to lead and music right clearly <laughs> and music oh, yeah. But other than that, you know, effects can have those other moments. Not not a problem at all. Bit of foley, Paul. No, we try we try to really dance around um, what we collectively feel is important, you know, during the scene in terms of tone and emotion and and legibility. Talk to me about the sound design of the uh, the Bell Marsh sequence and the uh, the return of Blofeld. I, I love I love that sequence, and it's very subtle. And there's a lot of uh, it's 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 there's a lot of quiet happening. But can you talk about kind of how you use the the sound design uh, and the effects in that sequence in a, in a way to sort of make that space very foreboding? You're used to going to MI6 and seeing super slick gadgets and everything, and super futuristic environments and so I, again it was just something felt quite fresh to go to something that feels very industrial and stark um and, and i think part of that would have been um partly so you feel it's very tucked away and super secure but also i think it was to to sort of underscore that, that sort of awkwardness between bond and madeleine as well because that's the first time i think they see each other in the film isn't it and and just that friction there um and i think it was it was a it was a good backdrop to that in t visually and sound wise everything's just clunky and awkward and um and nasty there's nothing soothing about any of the sound there so um i think that just really you know was a good underscore um for for what was happening emotionally on the on the screen there i do i would love to talk about the sound design on the uh sort of the 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 World War Two abandoned uh, uh, base, which of course you know every every good super villain has to have a fantastic lair, and so um, so we've got a great one in this sequence. And I presume that that entire thing was built on soundstage out of plywood. So <laughs> acoustically, how did that come to you? And can you talk about sort of building that space uh, from a sound design and, and and mixing it acoustically? Um, yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, I guess there's various locations within, in that, um, the, the baddie lair, um, you know, the, the big main, the, the, the sort of acidic acid farm thing that's there, um, that with, you know, just visually the very first time you see it with the, the sort of neon suits, um, and with the, I think they got gas mask type things on, haven't they? Yeah. And everything, you know, you just go, oh, okay, fine. This, you know, we should, we should do something here. It's not, uh, and so it was just fun we had you know it was the little tannoy noises the little uh that came in with the intercom um the sort of pa type things uh, we just wanted it to sound really dissonant and odd and jar you know these people aren't having a good time they're not happy workers we wanted it to feel um and and it's sort of quirky. having seen some of kerry's earlier work you know he's got um you know there's a humor there and a, and a quirkiness um and so we we're like fine i think we, we're safe to go into some and so that, that was a great um sequence to to work on it we could make it yeah, pretty fun and we deliberately tried to have because it was an old base so we had the modern kind of equipment that they're all using um which was either done with chemas or eurax synths and things like that um 
to, for the modern gadgets. Um, and then at the end, when he then sparks up the old equipment to open up the, the big doors, um, we changed the voice from a modern sounding woman speaking Russian to more of a 50s male sounding Russian. And all the equipment then suddenly became, you know, a lot more clunky and everything. So it's quite nice to have the same environment and then sort of two different layers of sound design, one handing over to the other. Um, and, you, and you sort of felt the history of the place come back, um, which was which was nice. And it was nice. I mean, that that whole that whole island setting had so many different environments for for reverb and space and depth for for all of us to uh, to work in. And you know, walking down the corridor, just talking, and then there's gunshots in a corridor or a stairwell, or you're in the big acid farm, or or you're uh, you know out in the middle by the pool. Um, and the big conversation between Saturn and Bond, that one with the yeah. crashing waves down below and everything, yeah. And and Carrie really wanted to press on on the the waves crashing into the side of that island and the complex um, all the time when we were out in that open garden area. Um, so you know there was a lot of it was actually a lot of fun trying to set up those different spaces um, with whatever we were putting in them, be it gunshots, footsteps, dialogue. You know, it was all, uh, it was very rich visually. It was definitely very intense. The uh, the, the the gunfights and uh, the, the fighting sequence and the gunshots in the stairwell that was such a contained. You know, usually these action sequences are playing out in this huge space, but that was so. It was a. It was like it was very intimate. The the the, the fighting in that sequence. It was great. And, it, and it's again a little bookend, I guess. I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but there's that in Casino Royale. There's the great fight in the stairwell there, which is a lot more rough and ready. You know, I, I guess that's Bond's, you know, he's still becoming the season sort of 008 agent. So, um, and then obviously he's extremely adept by the end and everything's much more concise. Um, and, and so it's quite a nice thing to see the sort of development of what he's like as a, an agent as well with, between those two um, sequences. Um, and sound wise, you know, it's stairwell, it's really nice. You can have a, a very big reverb that doesn't last very long in terms of a, a big bloom that just disappears quickly. So you, so you can define a space very heavily and then, you know, you're back down to quieter again. Um, so it's a nice uh, change from um, the other environments, which were much more, you know, long haul bloom kind of things um, to have something really concise, but still well-defined was, was yeah. good fun in there. So you'd have b big percussive sounds that disappear again very quickly. Especially when those grenades get, went off. Yeah. I don't know how we could hear anything after that. <laughs> we didn't for a while, did he? For sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I, you know, I love at the very end, we get that call back uh, to the, you know, the iconic uh, Louis Armstrong song. We have all the time in the world. And Paul, I was just curious, uh, how did that come to you? Was it, did you just get a, a was it just a two track stereo that came to you or like, what did you, how did you, how did you handle this song? What is that? That song is like from what? 67, 68, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and obviously iconic, and it was it was great placement of that song. I thought it was. Um, uh, I've had quite a few people mention that actually. Um, yeah, that was just the two track, and um, I mean, I'm not going to ask for stems on that to be honest because they don't exist. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just um, you know spread it in the room environment in the in the seven one environment, uh, and and let it play. It, it was is sounded beautiful it was i didn't really didn't have to do a great deal to it to be honest it's such a classic it is it is really classic well i do want to wrap up i just uh, uh i'm going to put you guys all on the spot i would love i'm curious because I, I always want to know 
Do you have a, a particular favorite uh, sequence in the film from a, a sound perspective that, you know, when you, when you watch the film, it just kind of makes you all feel kind of giggly inside that you got to work on it. That, that makes you particularly happy uh, when you watch the film. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it would change day to day, but um, if I had to think on the spot and I'd probably change my mind again in five minutes, but the, you know, we call it donut square. The, um, when the DB five, you know, flips around and the music kicks in and it's everything and it's just pure bond. That's, that was a goosebump moment. Definitely when we were working on it for sure. Yeah. Most definitely. And I, I would agree with that. And, and also just early on in the film where he's on the motorbike and he's, he's riding up those narrow alleys and he's going up the stairs and he flies over the wall and through the parade of, um, uh, uh, musicians. And then he just dumps the bike and walks into the hotel. That's classic. <laughs> You're right. That is a classic bomb moment. I think that my audience, uh, so, you know, people gasped when that, when he shot up on that motorbike over the precipice and landed, it was a, it was a fantastic sequence. Great sequence. Mark, what about you? What's your favorite scene? Um, I would say, I would agree. I think, um, the Italy stuff, um, for me was the, the more iconic Bondi um, sequences with you know, help from music, obviously, Paul. Um, but yeah, they, that would be with the one for me. I mean, there's so, so many good sequences, to be honest. That's a tough question. Even when they were coming down to the, to the lair at the end, to, to Rami's Island, um, you know, and they're in that plane and you, they're not sure how to fly it, or they say they don't know how to fly it, and you know they're going to suddenly they're going to crash. No, they're underwater now. How does that happen? You know, yeah. the sequence in the woods was fun for sound as well, with the yeah. ambient kind of you know diffuse sounds of motorbikes circling, like sharks circling them. That was, there was a, there's, there's loads of you know fun scenes to work on for sure. Oliver, I'm glad you pointed out that sequence, the the the, the chase in Norway with the with the uh, the Range Rovers. Like that, that was some amazing car work that that was done in that in that chase sequence. It was really really satisfying from a sound perspective. So you guys did some amazing work on that sequence. Thank you. <laughs> and the stunt work, I mean, was just exceptional as well. That it's um, these producers do they get the most incredible practical stunt work done on their films. It's just. Um, you don't have to wait and wonder what the scene's going to turn out like. It's like, here you go. This is the motorbike jumping that high. This is Land Rovers, you know, that aren't even released yet, flipping around, flipping over. And, you know, it's um, so you just get the footage and, you know, um, yeah, you can work on it straight away. Because we were working on it during filming. So it was great. We didn't have to wait around for, um, yeah, but they're fantastic footage to work on. Helicopter sweeps and the motorbikes coming down the hill and all of that through the water, camera right yeah. next to the water spraying up. Yeah, it's great. Well, uh, guys, thank you so much, Mark, Oliver, Paul. It was great to uh, to talk with you about this film. I'm so I'm so you know I'm I'm thrilled that they kept it back and didn't sort of put it out on a streaming platform in the middle of the of the pandemic. This is really a movie that does need to be experienced uh, in in the cinema because it's a big big film with a great sounding mix. And congratulations to you guys on it. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for interviewing us. Thanks again to Oliver, Paul, and Mark for taking the time today to talk to us about No Time to Die. It is playing right now in a Dolby Cinema near you, so uh, I hope you get a chance to go out and see it in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. It is a truly spectacular experience. As always, we have links in the show notes to help you find your way to that. Many thanks to our friends at MGM who helped us put this conversation together. Once again, make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute Podcast. Next up, we have another fun episode with a very big director and friend of the show that you will not want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed and in the show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. 
Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support is by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chin. Thank you for listening.